Coming at you from the One Stone Recording and Mastering Studio in New Brunswick, New Jersey. This is The Weigh-In with your host, Matt Ward. Welcome to The Weigh-In. My name is Matt Ward, and I'm a boxing writer and historian from the greater Philadelphia area. Every two weeks, I will introduce you to people from the world of boxing, both past and present. This episode of The Weigh-In features my interview with professional ring announcer, voice talent, and writer Steve Peacock. For the past three years, he has been the announcer for Global Proving Ground and Fight Club Champion, and during that time has also announced several USA Boxing sanctioned tournaments and combat sports events for promoters including Dead Serious MMA, Cage Fury Fighting Championships, and World Class Kickboxing Championships. Without further delay, here is The Weigh-In with Steve Peacock. Please introduce yourself to my listeners. My name is Steve Peacock, and I am a combat sports and other sports announcer. Growing up, were you a fan of boxing? I was, yeah. I had the opportunity, and I'm also giving away my age here, <laughs> to watch, for example, some of the great Muhammad Ali contests of the early to late, from the early to late 70s. So I was a big fan of boxing back then. I mean, a lot of people were just amazed and in awe of not just Ali, but, you know, Frazier and Foreman and uh, so many others. We, I could be here all day naming them. There's so many greats of the 70s. So even as a, a young kid, even before and after being a teen, couldn't help but be fascinated because of the amazing crop of boxers out there. Was there a particular individual or individuals who urged you to pursue a career in ring announcing and emceeing? I'm not sure I'd say that there were individuals who can who urged me to consider it, but there were a few a few people who along the way urged me to keep going. In other words, like I started out on my own. This was totally sparked from within. Uh, I had a friend of mine who, uh, Dave Franciosi, he's a professional boxing referee, and he briefly started uh, an MMA promotion company. Mm -hmm. And I saw that as a great opportunity to get some experience. I said, Dave, give me a shot, just one shot. And at first he was reluctant. He said, Steve, do you know how difficult it is to get in and address an audience of hundreds of people, a thousand or more. And I said, Dave, I'm a high school teacher. I've taught in Trenton and other tough places. Getting in front of friendly faces who want to be there does not intimidate me. He said, all right, I'll give you a shot. He gave me one shot up at Brookdale Community College at the Collins Arena. And I met a few people who were from the boxing industry, such as Henry Haskup and a gentleman by the name of The Garve, another announcer. And they were amazed that I had never announced before. And so a few of them at that very moment, like from day one, encouraged me and said, you should keep it going. You, you, you've got a signature voice and a great presence and you should keep it going. And sure enough, that's what I did. I just started reaching out and building upon that one experience. Cool. Is there a particular announcer who you try to model your style after? I don't model my style after anyone, but I must say I am inspired, especially by uh, Mike Markham. I think he has just got an amazing presence and voice, 
and he is just a, a gentleman. You know, he's dressed mm-hmm. well, and he makes you want to be there. And there's just something about Markham that makes me want to seek excellence in what I do. He's he's the embodiment of excellence, I believe, in modern announcing right now. Cool. Are you under contract with any local combat sports promotions to serve as a regular announcer? Not under contract per se, but for the past two years I've done all or at least most of the shows for Global Proving Ground MMA and Fight Club Champion MMA. Boxing, I I get some calls Mm -hmm. from time to time and they are increasing. In fact, I got a call today and I'll be doing my first show in Philly for a USA boxing sanctioned event and but Global Proving Ground and Fight Club Champion I do consistently there are probably six or seven other promoters whom I've announced for that I do on an intermittent basis in addition to MMA and boxing on a regular basis the National Gym Association's New Jersey chapter has hired me for the past few events and that is expanding. Their affiliates are now calling me in Pennsylvania, Virginia, and uh, hopefully that will continue. And I'll not just be a regular announcer for the NGA here in Jersey, but perhaps nationwide. Nice. Please tell us a little bit more about your experiences announcing USA-sanctioned boxing events. Sure. I received a call from... James Jefferson, who is the proprietor of Global Proving Ground MMA, and he has a facility in Voorhees, New Jersey. And so he's in in contact with people in the combat sports industry in the New Jersey, Pennsylvania area and beyond. So a couple of years ago, he needed someone for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania Golden Gloves. And so that was my first foray into boxing announcing. Mm -hmm. And since that time, there are a couple of promoters in the Philly area that do business in Philly as well as in South Jersey, and they've taken an interest in me. And like I said earlier, I've got a couple of got a call for a couple of gigs that are coming up in and around Philly, which is exciting. Cool. What was the biggest fight you have announced at to at this point in your career? If you're talking about venue. Mm-hmm. The biggest fight would be, and in fact, it's almost a year ago to this date, Cage Fury Fighting Championships had me do their next generation MMA event at the Borgata in Atlantic City. Very nice. So a year ago, I got my debut opportunity in AC. And what had happened is uh, CFFC had divided their amateur and pro shows. And they experimented with this. They called on me for this new program. Apparently after that, they decided to just have pro and amateur the same night. Mm -hmm. So what looked like a fantastic opportunity to keep working for them was a one-time gig, but a one-time gig at an amazing venue nonetheless. And it was a fantastic experience. It was one of my best shows. Very nice, very nice. Fighter-wise, I'm trying to think of who the biggest one might be. Probably... Actually, the one of the very first fights I had done, Sam Oropisa of Pennsylvania, he oh, had yeah. fought, um, his last name is Woods, and suddenly, the good soldier Woods, I can't think of his first name, but that was a huge 
fight. I mean, it was widely promoted. It was well covered because Sam had come from, I believe he had fought in Bellator and a couple of other bigger uh, promotions. And so this was a huge fight, especially being my first full event to cover. And I was really nervous, and it turned out it worked, it worked out fairly well. There were a few kinks, some that were beyond my control that night, but it was exciting that this big event that got so much hype, it ended in less than a minute because he dropped Woods, and Woods hit his head on the, the cage, and he was knocked out in less than a minute. So it was, wow. again, name-wise the biggest. I'm not sure if it was the biggest or most exciting fight there was, but uh, it, for me, for my personal history, it was one of the biggest. Cool, cool. Quick knockout, too. Yes, indeed, <laughs> yeah. Who are some of your current favorite professional boxers? Hmm. You know, the funny thing is, I'm not sure if I have any specific favorites. Like, I'm a, an avid watcher of boxing. But unlike the old days when, well, even then, I don't know if I had a favorite. But like I said earlier, I gravitated towards some of the, the greats, the great names of the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I don't really have a particular favorite that I, that I tend to root for. I keep track of all the, all the big fights, you know, uh, Manny Pacquiao and you know, Mayweather and people like that. And, of course, those are just two of the biggest names. Right, right. Uh, I'm actually interested in a lot of the up-and-coming fighters and so I keep track of just a, a little bit of everyone, the biggest ones, including some of the uh, you know, local fighters, big fighters coming out of, particularly in Philly. I have a great interest in the, the Philly boxing scene. Cool. Do you feel that way also about MMA fighters as well? MMA fighters, I tell you what, after that last UFC event, there was just something about TJ Dillashaw that caught my attention. Mm. Not, he's just, the way he carried himself... The manner in which he fought, I'm, I'm a new fan of TJ Dillashaw. I started following him online just to hear what he has to say and see where he has to go. Cool. Last season, you debuted as the announcer for the New York Yankees AAA affiliate, the scranton Wilkesbury Rail Riders. What was it like for you, a guy who grew up in the Bronx, to serve in this position? Let me tell you this. I, there's a, like a running joke, in, not joke, but like a running uh, comment that I make in my family that they're probably sick of hearing, especially my wife. I, anytime we refer to or hear about the Yankees, I will say, did I ever tell you I was born in the shadow of Yankee Stadium? <laughs> it's one of those rep- repetitive things I say that's, you know, it's kind of like everyone's tired of hearing it, and yet that's just me. That, that's Steve. And, you know, that's what my wife and others say. Oh, okay. Yes, you were born in the shadow of Yankee Stadium. <laughs> so there is something to be said about working for the Yankees organization. Even though I wasn't in the Bronx in Yankee Stadium, I got a paycheck from, you know, New York Yankees Incorporated or whatever the f- official name is. So I was born probably less than a mile or about a mile or so from Yankee Stadium at Bronx Lebanon Hospital up on the Grand Concourse. I'd gone to several games as a child at the old stadium, as well as the, if I'm not mistaken, it was the second or third game of the then new stadium in 1976. Mm-hmm. I have pictures of me standing literally in the shadow of Yankee Stadium uh, <laughs> from when I was you know, five, six years old. 
have memories. It, it's just, it was an incredible opportunity. Just as an announcer, even, even if, it was, if it was a team that had nothing to do with the Yankees, the fact that I got onto a baseball field and auditioned for this position, that was exciting enough. But yeah, there was something about being part of that Yankee organization, considering my long history. And I, I could probably keep going with different stories that I have related to the Yankees and why this opportunity is so significant. I mean, I'm actually old enough to barely remember seeing Mickey Mantle in one of his last games. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was September 1969. So, I mean, I was only you know, five years old, but had seats. If I'm not mistaken, it was along the third base line, but my uncle had taken my cousin and me to that game and at the end of the game, my uncle said, I want me to put you on the field? Because we were right there. Mm -hmm. And he lifted me up and put me on the dirt. And I don't know if my uncle said this or he just realized it, but there I was sharing dirt, sharing the same field where both my steps and Mickey Mantle's steps tread. So it just... Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's nice. There's something cool about it. And I love throwing that in the face of all my anti-Yankee friends. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, Steve. Are you going to be announcing for them again this season? I'm not 100% sure, but I might not because the trip up to uh, Musick, which is the town outside of scranton Wilkesbury, where PNC Field is located, it's just too far. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm complaining about the pay, but PA announcers typically don't get a lot of money. Right. And I accept that. It was worth it for the experience, but there were some days, especially if I took the Pennsylvania Turnpike, there were some days I was spending money to go work there. And yeah. it was a worthwhile investment, but doing it maybe eight or ten times last season was a great experience. I'm hoping someone locally will have an opportunity. I mean, of course, the Lakewood Blue Claws are five minutes down the road from where we sit at this moment. Mm -hmm. I'd be open to going there or to Trenton Thunder, you know, if, if they're looking. I'm going to keep an eye out for it, and let's hope that someone locally needs an announcer because I would like to keep my hand in baseball PA announcing. Yeah. Besides bodybuilding, baseball, and combat sports, what other types of events have you announced or emceed? I am the PA announcer for Lakewood High School. Cool. I've been doing that for three years now. And also keep in mind that... What makes that interesting isn't just that this is a great place to be a PA announcer. Their, their basketball team is phenomenal. There's a long history of, uh, of, excuse me, of basketball excellence in this school. So it's wonderful being part of that. But I'm also a 1982 Lakewood High School graduate. I work with a bunch of people who are alumni from Lakewood. Uh, in fact, tonight, I just found out that the opposing team, Piscataway, their coach is none other than Darius Griffin, who is a Lakewood legend from the 70s. Oh. And I, when I first moved here from the Bronx, I remember I kept hearing about this Darius Griffin. He was a legend. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't go to school with him. He graduated before I got here, before I got to Lakewood High School. But he will be there tonight as the coach of Piscataway, oh, wow. along with our coach, who is another Lakewood basketball legend, Randy Holmes. So... It's stuff like that just makes it really great to 
be part of this scene. I mean, at any given night, there could be alumni from the 1950s all the way through to the past couple of years, and there's something to be said about that. Yeah, that's a that's a cool legacy. It's it's wonderful, and and to know these people and to have them come to me and say hello and introduce themselves, it's mm. uh, and take pictures with me even. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's so cool. I feel I'm, I'm not a celebrity, but I they sure make me feel like a local celebrity. Right, right. You're currently finishing up a book entitled Play Dead, Roll Over, based on your experiences as an NYPD officer. Can you tell us a little more about this book and what made you decide to write a book based on this chapter, no pun intended, of your life? Let me clarify one thing. Although I did say that I was pursuing a career through NYPD, I never actually made it into NYPD. That oh. was the that was the end result. And forgive me if I worded it incorrectly or if it was not uh, totally clear. I was on my way or hoping to join NYPD. Oh, okay. So when I moved back to New York City in the late '80s, I was on the list to join the force. I'd passed the test, the written test. There were a few obstacles that got in the way. Uh, perfect example, they actually changed the weight requirement for new officers, and it was irrespective of your physical condition. Mm-hmm. If you were six feet tall, you couldn't be more than, say, 100, 193 pounds. Well, I was solid muscle, 220 pounds. It didn't matter. They said, out, on the day of my interview and the first day of processing. What had happened after that is I kept looking for jobs at least somewhat related to law enforcement or at least security. Mm -hmm. So uh, initially I worked for a couple of years at a place called the Helmsley Palace, a a luxury hotel in Midtown Manhattan. Nice, it's a security guard job, but it's basically a somewhat prestigious security position. You know, you're working in a five-diamond hotel, some of the richest, most famous people on earth staying there. I'm wearing a suit rather than a uniform. That was nice, but I wanted something a little more challenging. So I took a job on Roosevelt Island. That's a, uh, for those who don't know, it's a, a sliver of land between Manhattan and Queens on the East River, and they have a public safety department there. So I got hired as a public safety officer, mm-hmm. uh, which led to being deputized as a special patrolman. It's an unarmed peace officer position. Kind of like uh, in New Jersey, they have these this specials on the, a lot of boardwalk towns. They can arrest you in that town they're either armed or unarmed, and they may not be police officers, but they are technically peace officers, law enforcement officer light, I call it. Oh, okay. That's what I did on Roosevelt Island. So without giving away the entire book, which, by the way, I am fictionalizing. I decided I'm going to take a real-life story and turn it into a novel, but uh, the short story is this. I wanted to join NYPD and had dreamed of doing that since I was a kid. Well, the guy who shot me while I was directing traffic at 3.15 in the afternoon, one fine March 1990 uh, afternoon, turns out later on that the guy who refused to cooperate me cooperate with me when I stopped him, I later found out he was a retired New York City cop. Wow. He felt that he, I had no right to stop him, and he resisted, and it got physical, Mm-hmm. And ultimately, he reached into his waistband. And when I saw that it was a gun, I struck him. And unfortunately, he got off one shot. A thirty-eight caliber slug 
ripped through my left armpit at point-blank range and exited below my shoulder blade as I fell to the ground. And what made it even more fascinating or horrifying, well, let me back up a little bit before we get to the legal part of it. I fell to the ground and I laid there and played dead, hence the title, oh. Play Dead Roll Over. I played dead hoping he wouldn't shoot me again. But in the interim, I heard the click, click, scrape of his footsteps, which, which halted right next to my head. And at that moment, I said, so this is how my life sh shall die. And I awaited the bullets to crash through the back of my head, hoping they wouldn't. But at the same time, I was frozen and just thought, this is it. And at that very moment, I pictured my mom. I was not married at the time, by the way. But I pictured my mom at my coffin, at the funeral, clutching onto the edge, screaming my name. And I remember it like yesterday, as if it actually happened. So anyway, it was a lengthy process in which the shooter was eventually acquitted and wow. then took me on a roller coaster ride through the court system, which, again, without giving it away the whole story, mm -hmm. I'll have to save that for another time. I was put through 40, no, 50 months of hell from the day of the shooting to the day that somebody finally said officially that Officer Peacock committed no wrongdoing. 50 months of hell, and it literally almost drove me insane. That's horrible. Yeah, horrible story, and yet at the same time, I'm not saying I, I'm glad it happened, of course, but it made me a stronger, more tenacious person who, for the most part, appreciates life more than I did before I stared death in the eye. Very well said, Steve. Yeah. Well, we look forward to reading the book, certainly. I hope it gets published. Right now, it is there's a final draft of the nonfiction version now fictionalizing it for a variety of reasons I won't go into here. So maybe in the next year or two, there'll be a, a, a copy of the book on the stands. Let's hope. Cool. We'll keep an eye out for it, definitely. Yeah, excellent. Is there anything else you'd like to say to my listeners? Well, as they are boxing enthusiasts, mm -hmm. one of my favorite boxing stories I would definitely like to share with you. Sure. While working in the Holmesley Palace Hotel that I mentioned before, in the, it was definitely the late 80s. I don't know if it was 87, 88, 89. But all of a sudden, then world champion, and if I'm not mistaken, recently crowned world champion, Mike Tyson walks into the lobby with two people at, say, 2 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. There's no one around except a few employees, Tyson, and two friends or colleagues. Everyone descends upon him, but few employees were there. Hello, Mr. Tyson. Welcome, Mr. Tyson. What can we do for you, Mr. Tyson? Well, I stood there with an elevator attendant, and for whatever reason, we just we thought that was like just disgusting. They were fawning over him excessively. It was ridiculous. Yeah. And so we ignored him. Not, not to be disrespectful, but we didn't go over and kiss his ass, basically. Mm -hmm. Tyson clearly picks up on that. It's a wide open lobby, no one around, gigantic lobby. He goes out of his way, and even though the elevator attendant, his name was Tom, I'll never forget, but even though Tom and I are standing probably no more than a yard apart, Tyson goes out of his way, swagger in his step, and walks between us. <laughs> 
for a split second, and this is probably very immature of me, but I was, you know, 24, 25 at the time, a lot, half a lifetime ago for me. <laughs> for a split second, I thought of coughing as he walked, because he was right in front of me. It was really, it was, it was intimidating, and yet it was, uh, it just got me mad. Right. And I wanted to cough just to piss him off. No, I'm not trying to make a poem there. <laughs> but then I realized, I don't feel like feeling pain right now. Funny thing is, we were almost exactly the same size, height and weight at the time. If I'm not mistaken, both Tyson and I, in the late 80s, were about six foot tall, 235 pounds. Yeah. Mike Tyson is a different level of 235 pounds at the time. I'd be a fool to have incited him. But here's the, it actually ends on a funny note. Tyson walks away, looking over his shoulder, staring us down like, what are you going to do? He's not paying attention, and he trips over a vacuum cleaner cord that is plugged in the wall. He doesn't fall, but there's the heavyweight champion of the world trying to play tough guy with a couple of hotel employees, and he nearly busts his ass on the Helmsley Palace floor, again, because of his actions. And he looked at the nearby lobby attendant who was, whose vacuum cleaner got unplugged. And he just looked at him and said, Oh, sorry. And then walked away. That was the extent <laughs> of my experience with Tyson. But I've told that story a million times. My, my students especially love to hear that. Every year I share that at some point with my new students, who are, especially those in, who are interested in uh, combat sports and uh, here it is, decades later, still telling it. So. <laughs> it's a great story, Steve. I'm glad I had the experience. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with us. Oh, my pleasure. I had a feeling I'd get an opportunity to bring that up. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much for sitting down with me this afternoon. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate you wanting, to be a, wanting me to be a part of your new podcast. Best wishes. Thank you, Steve. Excellent. You can learn more about Steve Peacock via a series of links to websites such as Steve's Facebook page in the notes section of this episode. As we discussed earlier in the episode and in the interview, Steve is a man who wears many hats. Along with his work as a ring announcer and MC, Steve is also a high school English teacher and writer. And now, our executive producer, Peter Lloyd, will tell us more about our next episode. The next episode of The Weigh-In will air on March 29th and will feature Matt's interview with former middleweight boxing contender and USBA middleweight champion Curtis Parker. Curtis fought professionally from 1977 to 1988 and is just one of the many great fighters to come out of the city of brotherly love. During his career, Curtis compiled a record of 29 wins, 9 losses, and 0 draws. On May 4, 1980, Curtis defeated Mike Colbert for the USBA middleweight title in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Parker fought his final professional bout on March 19, 1988 in Las Vegas, Nevada. In this bout, Curtis was defeated by Michael Nunn for the NABF middleweight title. You can listen to the Way in podcast on both SoundCloud and iTunes. If you listen to the show on iTunes, please leave us a rating. This will help other listeners find the show. Thank you for the preview of our next episode, Peter. If you would like to contact the Way in staff, you can reach us through social media and email. Our contact information is posted in the notes section of the episode. We love to hear from our listeners. That does it for the fourth episode of the Weigh-In Boxing Podcast. 
The Way In is brought to you by One Stone Recording and Mastering in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Check out One Stone Recording and Mastering for all of your mixing and mastering needs. Go to onestonerecording.com slash thewayin and receive 10% off your first session. Special thanks to Steve Peacock and you, the listeners, for being a part of our fourth episode. You can now be like our friend JP Favera and support the Way In podcast on Patreon. You can support us for as little as $1 a month. Your pledge will go directly towards travel expenses and studio fees. Thank you again, JP, for being a part of our team. I hope the weather in Florida is great. Until next time, I'm Matt Ward, and this is The Way In. Hey, it's Peter, the executive producer of The Way In. As many of you know, MW and I are both history geeks. When we're not talking about boxing or planning the next episode of The Way In, we enjoy getting our New Jersey history fix at Garden State Legacy. This quarterly online magazine gives readers an in-depth look at the people, places, and events that help to shape our home state's rich history. You can check out Garden State Legacy at GardenStateLegacy.com.